So please take your Bible and turn to Exodus chapter 7. Continue our sermon series this morning through the book of Exodus. And our text will be all of Exodus chapter 7. We'll read the text as uh, others have done already before me in the service. We'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and if you agree, please respond, thanks be to God. Exodus chapter 7, starting in verse 1, the Holy Spirit says, And Yahweh said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as Yahweh commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old, and Aaron 83 years old, when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as Yahweh commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents." But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as Yahweh had said. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him, and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says Yahweh, By this you shall know that I am Yahweh. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink. And the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And Yahweh said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as Yahweh commanded, 
In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood, and the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as Yahweh had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not even take this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after Yahweh had struck the Nile. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask now that you will sanctify us in the truth, and we believe that your word is the truth. We pray in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I'm going to have Megan put a, a, a picture up on the screen for you. There are several houses on our street that have a sign very similar to this uh, in their yard. It reads, We believe black lives matter. Love is love. No human being is illegal. Water is life. Science is real. Women's rights are human rights. This sign, or variations of it, have become somewhat of a modern secular creed. Now, on its surface, each of these statements are not problematic, but debate ensues when we get to the worldview behind some, if not all, of these statements. Earlier in our service, Pastor Brett led us as we recited the Apostles' Creed together as a church. The Apostles' Creed is the oldest and most venerated of all the creeds, uh, the Orthodox creeds. The Apostles' Creed is a fine summary of the Christian faith. The Apostles' Creed summarizes for us the boundaries of Christianity. To deny the statements of the creed would be to deny Orthodox Christianity itself. That sign we had up on the screen is a snapshot of what our modern secular culture values most. It's a summary of what our culture views as non-negotiable. To deny any of these points, and more importantly, the worldview behind these points, is outside of the bounds of cultural modern orthodoxy. And don't miss this. The culture, our culture, even our modern secular culture, is confessional. Whether they admit it or not, they are creedal. They are confessional. This sign begins the same way that the Apostles' Creed does. We believe. Our culture is making a statement of belief here. This is modernistic Orthodoxy, this is the dogma of secularism. The culture 
unequivocally means to catechize us and our children in their dogma. These points that they believe, and like I said, more importantly, the worldview behind these statements are to be believed or else. The fifth line, I don't know if you can see it, uh, well, you can see it from where you are. It's in blue font. It says, we believe that water is life. Regardless of the worldview or the politics behind that statement, and whether or not you agree with the worldview and politics behind that statement, many cultures throughout history, the history of the world, have been tempted to deify water because human beings cannot live without water. Most humans would die in three or four days if they did not have water. I'm done with it, Megan, thanks. The longest documented case of a human being living without water is 18 days. And because water is so integral to human survival, people throughout the history of the world have been tempted and have always been tempted to idolize water, to worship water, to make a god out of water. This was certainly true for the ancient Egyptians in the text that we just read from Exodus chapter 7. Of course, our culture does not idolize water in the same way or in exactly the same way that the Egyptians did, but the root of the problem has been consistent throughout human history. The creator-creature distinction is no less nullified in our culture than it was in their culture, regardless of the specifics of how we may be tempted to idolize water or other creation. This is the cultural setting we find ourselves in when we come to Exodus chapter 7. Just like our modern culture, the ancient Egyptian culture had idolatrous creeds that stood in opposition to the kingdom of God. And while the particulars may change, one truth stands the test of time. The kingdom of Christ, or the kingdom of God, those are the same thing, synonymous. The kingdom of Christ is a kingdom of life. Every other kingdom in the history of the world is a kingdom of death. The kingdom of Christ is a kingdom of life. Every other kingdom in the history of the world is a kingdom of death. Exodus chapter 7 continues the conversation between Moses and Yahweh that started at the end of Exodus chapter 5, took us all the way through Exodus chapter 6 that Pastor Kevin preached last week and into the beginning of Exodus chapter 7 that we just read uh, this morning. And in verse 1 of Exodus chapter 7, Yahweh declares that Moses will be like God to Pharaoh and Aaron will be like Moses' prophet. The Hebrew of Exodus chapter 7 verse 1 literally reads, See, I have made you God to Pharaoh. What that means is that Yahweh will be working 
through Moses. When Pharaoh sees Moses or hears Moses, it is as if Yahweh himself is standing there, speaking or acting. You will be God to Pharaoh. In this way, Moses is serving for us as a type of Christ. Moses was God to Pharaoh. Moses was the man who stood between God and humanity. Moses is the shadow of the one to come who is both truly God and truly man. Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God. He is the second person of the Holy Trinity. We confessed earlier that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Jesus Christ is both human and divine. John 1.14 declares, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This reality exists, at least in part, between parents and children. Specifically between fathers and their children. Of the Ten Commandments, the first four, you can see them over here on the wall in yellow, courtesy of our girl Jan Heisler, who used to hook us up with those banners. The first four of the Ten Commandments uh, regulate our relationship between God, between us and God, right? You shall have no other gods before me, shall not worship an image, you shall not take the Lord's name in vain, remember the Sabbath day. Those are about how humanity relates to God. The last six commandments over here are about how humanity relates to each other. And isn't it interesting that of the people-to-people commands of the last six, the first one is to honor your father and your mother. Even before the Lord commands, you shall not murder, he commands, honor your father and your mother. This is because the parent-child relationship is the training ground for children to learn how to honor God. Parents and fathers, more specifically, are like God to their children. It is their children's first taste of authority and love. Like Moses was God to Pharaoh, so parents are God to their children. We are representatives of God to our kids. And so we must faithfully image God to our children. We must love them and care for them. We must teach them discipline. Most importantly, we must raise them up in the gospel. We must teach them of Jesus. May Christ Community Church always be a place where children are welcomed, loved, cared for, catechized, and protected. Moses is not only signifying the hypostatic union to us, that he is both truly God and truly man, Jesus, that is, but Moses is also typifying for us the mediating work of Christ, Christ is our mediator, just as Moses is the bridge between Yahweh and Pharaoh, or Yahweh and the Israelites, so Christ is the true and final mediator between God and man. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. 
1 Timothy 2.5 says, There is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Because God is holy and because we are sinners, Pastor Mike led us in our confession and pardon. This morning we confess every week that we are sinners. Because God is holy and because people are sinners, we need a righteous mediator to intercede. And that man is Jesus Christ. Jesus lived without sin, Hebrews 4.15. Jesus then died on a Roman cross bearing the wrath of God for his people. Jesus was buried and on the third day, Jesus resurrected from the dead. That's why we're here, church. We come here every Sunday morning because it was on Sunday morning that Jesus rose from the dead, walked out of the tomb, and inaugurated the new creation. Now everyone who will repent of their sin and who will take Christ by faith will experience the forgiveness of their sins and the hope of eternal life. What does that mean? Well, first and foremost, to repent means to acknowledge that God is holy and that you are a sinner and that you deserve eternal conscious punishment in a place called hell because you're a sinner. To have faith in Christ consists of three things, knowledge, assent, and trust. You must have knowledge. You must have the knowledge of who Jesus is and what Jesus did. But knowledge is not enough. You must also assent. You must assent to the validity of that truth claim. You must assent that it is true. Everything we said about Jesus, the God-man who lived without sin, who died in our place, who rose again on the third day. But even that is not enough. Knowledge and assent do not make faith because faith also requires trust. You must place your trust in Christ alone. You must trust in his sinless life, his substitutionary death, his saving resurrection, and if you do so, you will be saved. Even now, the gospel beckons Repent and believe. If you have not done so, trust Christ today, and today will be the day of salvation. That is one possible response to the gospel. And we pray for anyone and everyone, as as Pastor Mike mentioned, if you're here and you're not a Christian, it is our prayer that you will take that knowledge that I just gave you of the gospel, the gospel we've been singing about and praying about and reading about and talking about all morning, and that you will assent to its truth, and that you will trust in the person of Christ. That is one possible response to the gospel. There is only one other possible response to the gospel, and that is what we see in verse 3. Yahweh says, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Four times in Exodus 7, it says that Pharaoh's heart is hardened. There is no neutral response to the gospel. The gospel either softens your heart or it hardens your heart. The same sun that melts the snow hardens the clay. And Pharaoh's heart here was once again hardened towards God's word. Chapter 3 of the Westminster Confession of Faith is on the eternal decrees of God. Paragraph 3 says this, 
In order to manifest his glory, God has ordered that some men and angels should be predestined to everlasting life and that others should be foreordained to everlasting death. Paragraph 7 goes on to read, According to the hidden purposes of his own will, by which he offers or withholds mercy at his pleasure, and for the glory of his sovereign power over his creatures, it pleased God not to call the rest of mankind and to ordain them to dishonor and wrath for their sin to the praise of his glorious justice. Scripture is clear that God is sovereign over all who believe and all who don't. We sing the song here at Christ Community Church, In Christ Alone. In that song, we sing the line, From life's first cry till final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. That applies to those who believe, and that applies to those who don't. From life's first cry till final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. At the same time, Pharaoh and everyone else in the history of the world who has rejected Christ or rejected the promises of God before Christ, they are all responsible for their decision to reject the gospel. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility are both taught in the Bible. There is a mystery and a tension that Scripture presents and also really doesn't care to answer. Namely, that God has foreordained all who would believe and also all who would reject the gospel. And at the same time, every human being is responsible to repent and believe the gospel. Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart. At the same time, Pharaoh actively rejected Yahweh out of his own volition. Both are true. The gospel once again calls, do not harden your heart. It's so interesting if you read Psalm 95, which is about the Exodus. The psalmist warns, don't harden your heart. He evokes Pharaoh. And then in Hebrews, we preached through the book of Hebrews several years ago. The warning of Hebrews is don't fall away. Don't turn away from Jesus. Don't harden your heart. Even now. As the gospel moves forward, as the word of God is preached, you will either be softened to the gospel or you will be hardened to the gospel. Trust in Jesus. Do not harden your heart. Then Yahweh tells Moses, starting in verse 8, what will happen when he and Aaron stand before Pharaoh again. Remember, they've already stood before him once, didn't perform any miracles, asked for the people to go. Pharaoh said, no. Now they've regrouped after the conversation with Yahweh in chapter 6. And Yahweh tells Moses that Aaron will throw down his staff and his staff will turn into a serpent. The wise men and the sorcerers of Egypt will do the same. They will throw their staffs down. They will turn into serpents. And then Aaron's staff will swallow up all of their staffs. Some scholars debate whether The Egyptian sorcerers used illusions to work these miracles. 
For example, there are some historical records of these sorcerers um, like st- almost stunning the snake so that it can't move, so that it looks like a staff, and then after a period of time that would wear off and they'd start moving again, so it would appear that it was a staff and then turned into a serpent. Um, some uh, others would wonder if the, these sorcerers enlisted demonic uh, powers or demonic help to do their supernatural work. Uh, either way, the text does not specify. We know that these men don't have the power in and of themselves, so whether it was an illusion or it was uh, demons or fallen angels or whatever, the point is that Yahweh is more powerful than Egypt's sorcerers. That's the point. Aaron's staff swallowed up all of theirs, and then it turned back into a staff. We know that because Aaron used it to turn the water into blood. This miracle reveals the power of Yahweh over Pharaoh and his sorcerers, but that's not all it's doing. It's also cluing us in on Pharaoh's identity. And this is an important biblical theological point. Whenever we see a serpent or a dragon or something of the like in Scripture, we are to be reminded of the serpent in the Garden of Eden. Here, Moses is identifying Pharaoh with the seed of the serpent from Genesis 3.15. Don't misunderstand this. In the Exodus narrative, Pharaoh is not a neutral bystander. Pharaoh stands in line with the evil reptilian king of old. Pharaoh is like the Pharisees of whom Jesus said, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. John 8, 44. If you are not trusting in Jesus this morning, this is you. Your family is the seed of the serpent. Your father is the devil who lies. There are only two groups of people in the whole history of humanity. There are the seed of the woman, which means those who trust in Jesus, and there is the seed of the serpent, those who do not trust in Jesus. And here's the thing. We are all born in sin as children of wrath. Ephesians 2, 3. By nature, we are all seed of the serpent. But when we trust in Jesus, God then transfers us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. Colossians 1, 13. So I implore you once again, do not allow your heart to be hardened. Trust in Christ. Well, now we come to the main event of Exodus chapter 7. If you're familiar with uh, boxing uh, or, or wrestling, these events that they put on, are they, they usually refer to them that it's a card. Have you heard of a boxing card or a wrestling card? So the top of the card is like the main event, right? That's what everyone's there to see. You know, that's that's uh, Frazier and Ali. That's uh, Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant. That's the main event, right? 
Okay, but then you have like the mid card, which are those matches that are kind of in the middle, and then the lower card, which is, you know, the, the first matches. Uh, if Exodus chapter 7 was a boxing event or a wrestling event, verses 14 through 24, this is the main event, right? This is where things really start to heat up. Yahweh, through Moses and Aaron, turns the Nile River to blood. This first plague, and as we move forward next week, uh, Pastor Kevin will preach the second, third, and fourth plagues, and we'll move forward with the plagues. This first plague begins God's judgment on Egypt's idolatry. Every year in ancient Egypt, the Nile River would flood, and this flooding would deposit rich, fertile soil on the riverbanks, which would allow this otherwise desert climate to produce crops. The ancient Egyptians would ascribe this annual occurrence to Hapi, H-A-P-I. This was the god of the Nile, or the god of fertility. It was an idol that they worshipped. According to ancient drawings, Egyptian drawings of Hapi that you can find if you Google Hapi, uh, the Egyptians pictured uh, Hapi, this god of fertility or this god of the Nile, to have a, a large belly and uh, engorged breasts, which would represent that it was pregnant because it's the god of fertility. It's the god of life. To the Egyptians, the Nile River was life itself. It represented the God of fertility. It represented the God of life. Another way to say that is that the Egyptians believed water is life. The Egyptians deified the water itself. They worshipped the Nile River. They would pray to the Nile River for crops. They would pray to the Nile River in hopes of conceiving a child which is even more ironic that it is Moses who was found in the river by Pharaoh's daughter and is rescued. They believed that this water was life. And here God is revealing to them that their idol is actually death. Exodus chapter 7 begins the plagues that Yahweh will unleash on Egypt through Moses and Aaron. And as we move through these plagues, it's important to note at the outset that the Egyptian plagues are not merely arbitrary displays of God's power. They do display God's power, but they are not mere arbitrary displays of his power. No, Yahweh is judging the nation of Egypt for two things, for their idolatry and for their subjugation of the Hebrew people. The plagues are judgments on the gods or the idols that the Egyptians worshipped. The New English translation of Scripture, the Net Bible, has a lot of helpful uh, grammatical and theological footnotes. One of the footnotes on this pericope says this, The theological emphasis for the exposition of this entire series of plagues may be the sovereign Lord is fully able to deliver his people from the oppression of the world so that they may worship and serve him alone. The sovereign Lord is fully able 
to deliver his people from the oppression of the world so that they may worship and serve him alone. The plagues are God's judgment on Egypt for their idolatry and oppression. When Israel will leave Egypt, they will go to Mount Sinai where Yahweh will give them his law, his law summarized in the Ten Commandments that we mentioned earlier. Jesus later will tell us that these Ten Commandments, which are a summary of the whole law, can be summarized in two commandments. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Matthew 22, 36 through 40, among other places. So ultimately what's going on here in their idolatry and in their enslaving or their subjugation of the Israel people, Israelite people, is that Egypt has not loved God and they have not loved their neighbor and they are being judged. Even after this first plague, Pharaoh's heart is still hardened. The plague doesn't cause him to fall down and worship Yahweh The plague causes him to hate Yahweh even more. You know what they say. Denial ain't just a river in Egypt. Let that come to you in time. Egypt's idolatry and oppression is leading them to death. The water-to-blood plague reveals to us that Egypt is a kingdom of death, and it does so both metaphorically and tangibly. Okay, Egypt is a kingdom of death, and the plague is revealing that the Nile River turns to blood. It's revealing that Egypt is a kingdom of death, both metaphorically and tangibly. It's revealing this metaphorically because God is taking this good, life-giving gift that he has given us, water, right? Water is a good, life-giving gift, and he's turning it to blood. He's taking something that will sustain us, something that we need to live, and he's transforming it into something that we cannot drink, will not sustain us. Without water, we will die. The Egyptians worship the water itself, and Yahweh is showing them that the water is mere creation, and he can do with it whatever he wants. Idolatry leads to death. Don't miss this. Again, this is not an arbitrary display of power. This is not just Yahweh dunking on Pharaoh. This is the Lord showing them your religion is going to take you to hell. Idolatry leads to death. To worship the creature rather than the creator is deadly. So metaphorically, that's what he's showing us. Second, tangibly, the plague is revealing that Egypt is a kingdom of death because when the water is turned to blood, it actually yields death. All of the fish in the Nile die. The people cannot drink the water. There's no water. They got to dig to try and find water or else they're going to die too. It's a kingdom of death. But God's kingdom is a kingdom of life. Jesus Christ reveals this to us in his first public miracle at the wedding of Cana. Pastor Brett read it uh, from John 2 in our call to worship. The wedding of Cana is, in a sense, a reversal of the first Egyptian plague. In the first plague, Yahweh turns the water into blood. At Cana, Christ takes the water and he turns it into wine. 
This, John tells us, is the first sign that Christ gave of his coming kingdom, and he did it at a wedding. Christ is revealing to us that his kingdom is like a wedding reception. It's like a wedding celebration. We know that's true because Ephesians 5 tells us that the gospel is most ultimately about the marriage of Christ to his people, the church. So the kingdom of Jesus is like a wedding reception where everyone is joyfully celebrating the marriage of Christ and the church. The kingdom of Christ is like a wedding reception that is serving the best wine even after the guests are so drunk that they wouldn't notice that it was bad wine. In judgment, Yahweh turns the Nile, the water of the Nile, into blood. In grace, Christ turned the water into wine. Egypt was a kingdom of death. The kingdom of Christ is a kingdom of life. Through his death and resurrection, Christ is bringing life to all who believe. What did we quote earlier from John 14, 6? I am the way, the truth, and the life. And on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the wine and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. The wine represents Christ's blood. So there's a sense in which in the sacrament, Christ is giving us his blood. Not like transubstantiation, like the Roman Catholic Church teaches. The wine doesn't actually turn into the blood of Jesus, but he's giving it to us in a representative way. My blood was shed for you. Yahweh turned the Nile to blood in judgment of Egypt's idolatry, and it led to death. Christ turned the water into wine, and later he gives us the wine to remember his death until he comes. And even so, as we prepare to come to the Eucharist this morning, we are reminded of the nature of Christ's kingdom. Christ is the true and final seed of the woman. Christ is truly God and truly man. Christ is not only Yahweh, but he's the true and better Moses leading the people 2 Corinthians 1.20, all of the promises of God find their yes in Christ. Life is found in his name alone and everything else leads to death. Water is life. That's what the sign said. The way that the Egyptians defined that sentence or even the way that our modern secular culture defines that sentence, falls short. But there is a sense in which that is true, that water is life. You see, in John chapter 4, Jesus met a Samaritan woman at a well, and he asked her for some water, and she wasn't used to Jewish men speaking to her, so she was very confused, and she questioned Jesus. What are you talking about? Jesus answered her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. 
But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. John 4, 13 through 14. Later in John chapter 7, Jesus explains a little more what he means when he's teaching in the temple. In John 7, 37 through 39, Jesus said this. He said, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now then John explains it. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Church, the living water that Christ gives us is the Holy Spirit. He's the one who regenerates our dead hearts. He's the one who seals us for the day of redemption. Trust in Christ and you will receive the living water and your soul will never thirst again. In that sense, we do believe water is life. The living water that Christ gives, His Holy Spirit. In fact, we confessed it earlier when we confessed the Apostles' Creed together as a church and we said, we believe in the Holy Spirit. Is your soul thirsty this morning? Is it thirsty for the forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life? Come to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we ask you now that you would take your word, Lord, and you promised us that it would not return void. We believe that. So we would ask once again if there are any here among us who have not trusted in Jesus alone that your living water, that your Holy Spirit would take their heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. Father, we ask for your people that we would be refreshed this morning by the word and the sacrament. For those of us who are suffering, for those of us who are struggling in sin, and Lord, there's no doubt that for each one of us, both are happening to varying degrees. Comfort us, refresh us, rebuke us, encourage us, sanctify us. Father, as we come to your table, we pray that we would remember and respond appropriately to your word. We pray these things, our Father, in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.